You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Our exhortation is taken from the readings in Matthew 11 today. And as Brother Lionel read, the the early verses of Matthew 11 express the great frustration of our Lord with the repeated disbelief of God's people. What more could God have done for them that he had not done? And now he had obviously sent John the Baptist who was dismissed by them as being possessed of a devil, and the Son of God, whom they described as gluttonous, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Jesus despaired at their response, and we see the gap in the record, which led to him praying and meditating why this should be so. His conclusion then comes at the end of a prayer. And it's God's wisdom, as we know, to reveal his ways to just a very few. The receptive little ones, the babes, who were his disciples. Brothers and sisters, the wise, the self-important, the high-minded, would not and could not receive the truth of God in Jesus Christ. It required a very different type of person to receive it. Someone who was teachable, open, receptive, and with a childlike mind. The complete complete Jewish Bible says it like this. Jesus says, Matthew 11, 25. Jesus said in prayer after meditation, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you concealed these things from the sophisticated and educated, and revealed them to ordinary people. Yes, Father, I thank you that it pleased you to do this. My Father's handed over everything to me. Indeed, no one fully knows the Son except the Father, and no one fully knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. So that's the basis of the lovely last three verses of Matthew 11. They are the ones to whom the Son wishes to reveal the Father, that elect few who are receptive to his words. So those comforting last three verses of Matthew 11 are what we're going to base our exhortation on today. And you might just want to keep your Bibles open there. That's all we're going to turn up together. So the Lord Jesus Christ opens his comforting words with the phrase, Come unto me, all you that are heavily laden. Come to me, all you that are heavy laden. The invitation is there and always was there. But it requires movement from us, brothers and sisters, to come to the Lord. James 4 tells us to draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. We need to make the movement to come to the Lord. 
Now, we had seen it with the ones who went to visit John the Baptist. The worldly wise and the proud could not bring themselves to make that move. Not in Jesus' day, nor in ours. Now, since only the Son truly knows the Father, it has to be to him that we come. That's why Jesus says, come unto me. Who else except the Son is going to reveal the Father to you and to me? And what are these burdens that are heavily laden on our shoulders? Well, brothers and sisters, there are two main classes of burdens. And this is part of normal life. There are ones which are of our own nature and making. And there are those which are placed on us by others and by circumstances. Those are the two classes of normal burden. Now, the first burden, that of our own nature and making. We know with David's sin, with Bathsheba, that it moved him to write that very eloquent psalm, Psalm 32, which describes this burden. And in that, Psalm 32, verses 4 and 5, David says, Your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me because it was the consequences of sin. And then David acknowledged my sin to you, to God, and my iniquity I have not hidden, says David. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sure, like me, you and I have experienced the fact that sin, and particularly unconfessed and unforgiven sin, is a heavy burden that bears us down more than we could ever realize. It bows us down under its weight, whether we like to think it does or not, and ends up having a deep, lasting psychological impact on us. Similarly, too, when we choose to make associations that drag us down spiritually, in effect, we are becoming yoked to a different kind of animal, as it were, than what we are in the Lord's service. Now, work in that unequal yoke is always painful and distressing. Always. Because, as with the different animals, they pull and chafe one another. And it's not a comfortable pulling together under that shared yoke. And that's why unequal yoking of different animals was expressly forbidden in the law in Deuteronomy 22 at verse 10. It's how slow are you and I to apply this to ourselves and the associations and the people that hurt and pull us off course. The ones and the circumstances that move us in directions contrary to the straight path we are plowing to God's kingdom. But what of the second class of burdens, those that are placed on us by others and by circumstance? Jesus uses a word for, the bur for burden here that is used in the New Testament for burdens placed on us by others. For example, in his day, it was the professors of the Jewish law who, in the words of Luke eleven forty six, load men with burdens hard to bear. 
they put commandments and legal requirements on the, the people that was really a, a burden and, and hard to bear. They were onerous burdens. And the problem with these burdens that the lawyers put on them was that it led to either guilt for not having kept the minutiae of the law or to pride for having done so. Either way, there was a problem. So in Jesus' day, too, there were other external problems that popped up. And the external problem was of the imposed yoke of Roman occupation. In Jesus' day, there was Roman occupation, government, and taxation. And that was a grievous burden that was universally hated by all. So brothers and sisters, the first burden, human nature and self-inflicted burdens, and the second, the unnecessary and unkeepable burdens laid on us by others, are the lot of all humanity. Just let me emphasize that. They perfectly describe the misery and the burden of the human condition of all humanity. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the arrogant and the self-assured of this age, the pompous and the high-minded, are weighed down by these two. Even though they may seem, in the words of Psalm 73, to prosper, to be strong, to be fat, to be trouble-free, to be wealthy, all of this is just an illusion. They are burdened and overburdened. But unlike us, brothers and sisters, they have no means of offloading them till they, like us, come to the only one who can unburden them. Jesus then says, come to me and I will give you rest. Having acknowledged these burdens, you see, if we come to the Lord in the right spirit, a gift awaits us. It's something he's going to give us, give us rest. The word that the Lord Jesus Christ uses is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for a Sabbath rest. So what Jesus was offering, brothers and sisters, was not a single day of rest, but a Sabbath life of rest, of rest from doing our own works, to do as we read in Hebrews 4, verses 3 and 10, to do his work. But how would this be rest in any normal sense of the word? Well, it isn't. It plainly isn't. The Sabbath rest was to cease laboring in the things of this age and to actively labor, not be passive, but to actively labor in God's service. It was never designed to be a rest from labor at all. It was a change of work that was required. This means for Jesus' disciples, it is a 24-7, seven-day-a-week job. There is no start time, nor stop time. So rest from labor of any sort, it certainly isn't. So how is this then a wonderful gift? if it entails a life of labor. The next few verses show us how. Jesus continues to say graciously, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, as we know, a yoke is something which unites two animals for a particular task. There can be a willing or an unwilling yoking. Therefore, the yoke is a figure of either an imposed bondage or an accepted service. The yoke can be of misery or of joy. The yoke can be of slavery or of freedom. So what was the yoke then that Jesus is offering us? Well, it's interesting to note that in Jesus' day, the phrase to take up the yoke was very similar to modern phrases that we use, like being at the grindstone or the nine to five slog. To take up your yoke in Jesus' day meant your daily job or your daily occupation. And what, what we've just learned is that our yoke, our daily job, is to do the Sabbath-like activity of the Lord's service. That is our occupation and our career. To take up Jesus' yoke is to take up Jesus' cross. And the selfsame words are used for both. Did you notice that? We have to take up the yoke and we have to take up the cross. The challenge to you and me is to actually take it up. In a couple of chapters on, Matthew 16, Jesus says in verse 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the same phrase that's used here in taking on the yoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take it up voluntarily joyfully for our freedom. But did you notice there was a choice presented to you and to me? Whether we choose to take this up or not, whether we are willing to do so or unwilling. Because unlike the burdens that sin and life impose upon us, whether we like it or not, this yoke, the yoke of Christ, is ours to choose. So what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting us to select his yoke and his burden. And in so doing, offload the yoke and the burdens of this world. We can't be doubly yoked. We can't have the yoke of this world and the yoke of Christ. We have to choose to offload the burden of this world to take on the yoke of Christ. It is one or the other. So when the Lord speaks of the changing of yokes for the wearing and a granting of rest in him, he's picking up some very beautiful words which those who were spiritually minded amongst them would have understood and known. Jesus was quoting from a lovely passage, a set of chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 54 to 66 at the end, of the restoration prophecies of Isaiah, where God was going to restore this recalcitrant, recalcitrant Israel back to its rightful place with him. Now, specifically in Isaiah 58, we read the following. Isaiah 58 at verse 6. Now, just look at the resonance of these words with what we've heard. Is not 
Is this not the fast that I, God, have chosen? God chooses a specific fast. He wants the people to obey. And what is the fast? Well, it's to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. And verse 9 continues to say, God wants them to take away the yoke from their midst, the pointing of the finger of accusation, of speaking of wickedness. To turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight. All the principles we've spoken about are what the Lord was quoting from in Isaiah 58, verses 6 to 13. Yet despite the desire of God for them to take up that offer of rest in Isaiah, it was rejected by national Israel. Isn't that a tragedy? But not so with the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one who took this task on himself by showing the way for us all to follow after him by learning of him. We follow by learning. We look at him as our leader, the lead one in this, this yoke, and we learn of him. It's of no use in taking up this yoke, brothers and sisters, if we don't learn to be like Jesus. And hopefully too then, helpfully too, brothers and sisters, when we take up this yoke, we are not doing so alone, but we're doing it alongside our brethren. The yoke of Jesus includes sharing the load of life of our brothers and sisters. Paul spoke of this as the essential law in Christ in Galatians 6 verse 2. He said that essential law in Christ is to bear one another's burdens. Paul further goes on in writing to the Ecclesia at Philippi in Philippians 4 verse 3 to, to call us as brothers and sisters in Christ yoke fellows. Why is that? Because we connected with one another in the Lord's service. And the principle is, of course, that being a full yoke of animals joined together, we can achieve way more in service than what we could ever do alone especially when in co-harness with our Lord. The Lord then goes on to say, for I am meek and lowly in heart. The qualities of meekness and lowliness are so uniquely Christ's that they were not used before the Christian era, according to Vine's expository dictionary. They are, says Vine, a distinct result of the gospel message. This was world-changing behavior to be meek and lowly. It was alien from normal human behavior. And as to its origin in Jesus, just think for a moment of the genuine humility and self-examination required for the Lord Jesus Christ to say that indeed, he was meek and lowly in heart. And to say so genuinely, what self-examination was required of the Lord? Lowly means cast down and depressed. 
mean, it means having been brought down from a higher position. And sadly for our Lord, no way would this be clearer seen than in that progressive humiliation that he experienced on the way to the cross. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is the attitude of mind that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying is a prerequisite for you and me to properly take up his yoke and to learn from him. It's a high calling, brothers and sisters, high calling. But when we do this, what does Jesus continue in Matthew 11 to say? He says, you will find rest for your souls. You will. Jesus here is recalling a wonderful commandment from Jeremiah 6, verse 16, which reads, Thus says Yahweh, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it, the solid things of God's truth. And the consequences of that in Jeremiah are, then you will find rest for your souls. The Lord Jesus Christ was the establisher of the old paths that had been so corrupted by Israel. And in so doing, if we follow him on those good old paths, we find rest for our souls. So who is this not that now takes these words of God from Jeremiah onto his own lips and in his own person and offers the promise of God as his promise? Well, who else could it be except the very Son of God? Now, as much as this yoke, brothers and sisters, was freely given as a gift, it still has to be actively sought after and found by us in our individual choices. Each one of us with a conscious decision needs to find our own rest in him. We all have our own burdens to offload on him. But wonderfully, when we do decide to cast off our old yoke and to take on the yoke of Christ properly, there is a guarantee, says Jesus, that we will find rest for our souls. It's not a question of maybe. You will find rest for your souls. It's a choice, brothers and sisters, that once made is a choice that is well made. Jesus then continues to say, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How is the yoke of the Lord easy when the life of a disciple is anything but easy? Easy is the word Christos, which sounds very much like Christ, doesn't it? And this is no accident at all. It's a phonetic wordplay that says, in effect, by taking on this yoke, you are taking on Christ as your yoke partner. That's what this is saying. It is for this reason and this reason alone that in sharing the yoke of Christ with Christ, that the yoke becomes bearable. That is why it's such a wonderful gift, brothers and sisters. Only in the sharing of this yoke is it a 
is it a bearable yoke? What a wonderful gift. So a life then, brothers and sisters, of taking up the cross, of self-crucifixion, becomes achievable only in harness with our Lord. We are bound together with him in service. What an honor and what a joy. We are not working this furrow of life alone. We are doing it with him. And of course, Jesus is a sympathetic fellow who works with us to plow a straight path to the kingdom. He is not like the unequally yoked animal who pulls and tugs and chafes at the yoke. He's sympathetic when we stumble and are weak and slow down and fall. He doesn't pull and chafe like that. He is one who is gentle and leads us on the straight path to the kingdom. And what of the burden being light? Well, we recall that the burden of this world, of sin and of the problems in it, is anything but light. In fact, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 48, it is so onerous that the punishment of God's people for sin is described there as an iron yoke about their necks, something insufferable to bear on their neck. The yoke of Christ is then, brothers and sisters, as the Greek implies, not light in the sense of no effort. It is light rather in the sense of being able to be carried. In other words, it is a doable yoke. It is a yoke that is able to be borne. And that's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's not light as in the sense of weighing nothing, but it is bearable only in harness with our Lord. So, brothers and sisters, it's a yoke either way, isn't it? The unbearable of yoke of sin and the pain of this world, or the yoke of Christ, whose burden is made easier by the Lord who shares it with us and who promises, promises us life in his kingdom. And for our young people who have yet to make this choice, I want to ask you the question, do you really have to experience all the folly of this world to conclude that it really is folly and you should make the right choice? Can't we learn from the terrible mistakes of others? Remember Solomon's conclusion is to remember now thy creator in the days of your youth. Ecclesiastes 12. It's without doubt the right approach. Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3.27, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth, the yoke of Christ. He knew what he was talking about. Do you know why? Young people, he became a prophet at the tender age of 17, and he never stopped till he was killed at around the age of 80. So for all of us, brothers and sisters and young people, the choice is stark, 
and the choice is refreshingly clear. So our closing thoughts then. In closing, we've learned that to be yoked to the world is to be bound to the very thing that holds us back and causes us to stumble. And with that yoke comes such crushingly heavy burdens. But the burden of sin and death has been taken away from all who have chosen to bind themselves to Christ, to take up his yoke, a yoke of kindness and goodness, of gentleness, and of making our burdens easier to bear. Though the world might tell us that faith in God is futile, stifling or even holding us back, we absolutely certain that being yoked to Christ actually helps us move forward towards the true rest of the kingdom. It is certainly a help and not a hindrance. We haven't been promised an easy journey. There's still a burden to bear. Yet Jesus says that his burden is light. He assures us, brothers and sisters, that with him by our side, sharing our load, we shall always have the strength to bear it as heavy and as painful as it may seem at the time. Isn't that comforting? Certainly is to me. So as we break bread and drink wine in remembrance of our Lord, what of him as our yoke fellow? He never deserved a yoke, did he? As Hebrews points out, the blood of Christ is vastly superior to the ashes of the red heifer. That spotless, perfect animal on whom no yoke was to come. Yet Christ was greater than that. Yet he did bear a yoke. He bore a yoke not for himself, but in the words of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, Christ was made sin for us. And in so doing, he bore that crushing yoke that he was completely undeserving of. And yet he did this willingly and gladly because he loves us to the end. Right to the very end. And not only that, but in Christ being our yoke fellow, he bears our burdens completely unequally to make them bearable by us. He bears that which would crush us by ourselves. It is asymmetrical burdening on our Lord to make it possible for us to take up his yoke. And even more so, brothers and sisters, not only is this load-bearing unevenly loaded on his side, but he bears all the burdens of all of those who yoke themselves to him, not just you and me. Can we even comprehend this? Such is the love of Christ. No wonder the words of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 are so relevant as we conclude our thoughts. I'm picking just a few selected verses from Isaiah 53. Just think of what they say. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It was enlightened for him. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But he's going to succeed with you and me in harness with him. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied, as Isaiah says. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured his soul out unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What a wonderful Lord we serve. So what do we do now, brothers and sisters? But cast our burden on the Lord. And he shall sustain us. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen